This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. You listen to the Bite Size Business Breakfast podcast best bits from Tuesday, December the 5th. We were broadcasting live from uh, Expo, live from COP28, and therefore. Uh, no surprise that the major conversation we were having was around all things climate. We took a look at the role of finance in the fight against climate change at the moment. Atul Aya, Senior Vice President and Chief Energy Strategist at S&P Global, was kind enough to come in, have a look back at some of the deals that have been done already, and a look ahead to what we can expect throughout the rest of COP28. Talking of all things finance, what about the regulators? What are they doing to make a difference? Well, the DFSA announcing that it will waive regulatory fees on ESG Nasdaq Dubai listings with immediate effect. Now, that was something that Ian Johnson of the DFSA told us. Then we looked at it more practically. Uh, Naeem Adad joined us. He's the head of Gates Hospitality. Naeem was here at A to tell us about what they offer on the ground, F&B-wise here. But also, how do you tweak your menu and your offerings accordingly for an event like COP28? And what about the challenges of feeding such a diverse uh, audience? Uh, Naeem, happy to help out with that. Plus, talking finance uh, and off the back of Finance Day down here at COP28, we had Shajil Bashir join us as well, uh, representing one of the biggest banks in the region, First Abu Dhabi Bank. The team from FAB very much active at this year's COP28, as are UA banks as a whole. They pledged more than one trillion dirhams in sustainable finance. But what is sustainable finance? Just one of a number of questions we put to Shajil. That's all right here on the Bite Size Business Breakfast podcast. Celebrating all things sustainability at COP28 and here on the Business Breakfast this morning. And who better to be doing that with than someone who's responsible for developing, leading and implementing uh, the biggest bank or one of the biggest bank in the region's um, uh, own ESG strategy and initiatives. He is the Chief Sustainability Officer for First Abu Dhabi Bank, FAB. Uh, Shashil Bashir joining us live here from our broadcast studio. Shashil, thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you very much for having me. Listen, um, uh, we're going to get on to some of the specifics shortly, but let's talk COP if we can. And who better to talk about it than, of course, your good self. Uh, no stranger uh, to COP, been to the last two. So third on the trot uh, here. How does it compare? I think that this COP so far has been um, been extremely positive. We have seen a lot of announcement coming very early on uh, at COP, which we didn't see in the past two COPs at least. So uh, very positive from that perspective. For the first four, five, four days of COP, uh, we have seen mobilization of more than 50 billion US dollars. So this was uh, supposed to be a COP of action. And I think action is exactly what we have seen in the first days of COP. We saw the loss and damage fund announced on the first day. We saw the announcement of Altera fund with the, mobilizing more than 30 billion US dollars. We have also seen the focus on climate and health. And yesterday we saw the announcement from the UA banks uh, coming out with committing to mobilizing more than 1 trillion dirhams by 2030. So I think already now we're seeing a lot of announcement and a lot of concrete actions coming out, which is what we need in order to uh, transition to a low-carbon future. No shortage of big announcements in the opening days, and that's to be expected with a number of the uh, major dignitaries in town, the opening ceremonies. We were told there'll be a big focus first weekend, first four days, etc. How important is it to maintain that momentum throughout the remainder of COP? 
I think it's extremely important that we maintain the momentum of continue focusing yeah. and engaging with all the different stakeholders. And we have so many topics that, that we still need to discuss. Nature, later on in the second week of COP, is going to be extremely important. We know that nature needs to play a much bigger role in these discussions. So I think we have a lot of topics coming up. I think the involvement of youth across all days of COP has been very important. So I think we will continue seeing a lot of action and, and concrete announcements being made, but also a lot of dialogue is going on. I think if you're Expo City, you're feeling the vibe with people interacting across different stakeholders, different pavilions, different parties coming together to discuss that how can they uh, collaborate and, and engage to make concrete action. You mentioned the, some of the big announcements already. One of them very close to your heart, UA Banks pledging more than a trillion dirhams in sustainable finance. Why why is it so important that not just banks such as your own, FAB, but uh, the banking sector as a whole plays that role or, or is, to, is seen to be playing that significant role in, in, in making it a more sustainable future for us all? So, Tom, if I can take a step back, we need to make a transition to net zero. Yeah. There are so many industries that need to transition. We can look at transportation example. We know that we need to electrify the transportation system we have now. We need to change the infrastructure. We need to change the buildings to become more green buildings. So we need to retrofit them. So they use less energy, have less uh, emissions as well. All these things need investments. And we need to make those investments available. We need to facilitate and mobilize for those investments. So that's why the financial sector plays such an important role, because we have touch points across multiple industries, multiple type of customers, from the largest of customers, the governments, to the individual, the SMEs. That's where the financial industry can go and support and facilitate and influence that change as well. In terms of the financing side of things. Um, again, uh, we're using this phrase, I mean, you use it a, a, a lot as well, sustainable financing. It is a phrase that is being bandied around here at the moment. And there's almost an assumption that m people fully understand it. I get that you do and those working within the banking sector. To, to those less initiated, to those listening in, how do you sus explain sustainable financing? So basically, sustainable finance can be split up into different categories. Mm. So we can look at the green financing as an example. So this will be every time you're financing a green transition, so to say. This can be the typical ones, solar farms, windmills, spe specific changes. But it can also be, as an example, we will see new projects, new technologies coming through like hydrogen which is going to be a very important part of the future energy mix that needs to be, be financed as well. But we can also look into social projects. We could look into the healthcare system, the education system that needs to look into it. So sustainable finance is this umbrella that will need to support the, the sustainable development that the world needs towards 2050, which covers multiple different topics. Some of them are purely green. Some of them will be social. Some of them can be a mix of both. And that's where that financing needs to be done. And I think I was here almost two years ago now uh, speaking about at that time that we made a commitment that we will facilitate more than 75 billion US dollars uh, towards sustainable finance projects by, by 2030. And now in the first two years, we have done more than 27 billion. So a third of that target we set at the time we have achieved uh, already, exactly because we are seeing acceleration of this happening in mm. the region. 
We are seeing this acceleration into new kind of energy pro projects. We are seeing this also from a social perspective as well. So this is the role the financial industry needs to play. And that's also why we saw this announcement yesterday with a commitment of more than 1 trillion dirhams to accelerate that transition that is required for the UAE, but also for the re region. Amazing that you're seeing that progress already and kudos to all the team at FAB for setting that ball rolling. But what about other UAE corporates? Are they, are they also seeing progress in, in their pledges at the moment or could more be done? I think we are seeing a lot. I think this year we have seen a lot being done, especially in the UAE. When we look at the issuance of green bonds, green sukuks, the number of issuance we've seen this year has almost doubled compared to last year. Mm. And we're seeing a trend that is positive, that more and more issuance is being focused. The, the discussion that are being taken with the leadership of the different companies across the UAE is very, very positive. Even in the region, I would say, there's more focus on green financing, green issuances like green bonds, green sukuks. But I would even say that what is really positive for, for me to see is that we are seeing SMEs getting engaged in this discussion again. SMEs are starting to realize the important role they will play in this transition because SMEs are such an important part of the ecosystem, mm. but we need to ensure that we raise awareness around the SMEs. And that's why also we are supporting the COP28 presidencies who has launched the SME Climate Hub. Um, the SME Climate Hub is basically a platform where the SMEs can go for free and find information about what they can do specifically to become more sustainable, mm. but also have specific tools like uh, you can understand how to calculate your emissions, how do you report them, and this is being made available for free for all the SMEs so they can start their journey because, as I mentioned, they're such an important part of the ecosystem. Shajal, bless you. Thanks so much indeed for your time this morning. Shajal Bashir is the uh, Chief Sustainability Officer of First Abu Dhabi Bank here in the UAE. And he is celebrating his third COP on the trot as well. So enjoy COP28. Thank you so much for having me. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. Let's look at one of the other top news stories coming out of Finance Day at COP28. The DFSA waiving fees on ESFG, ESG listings even on the NASDAQ Dubai Sustainable Listings. We're very pleased to be speaking this morning to the boss of the DFSA, a man who was running from one stage to another yesterday, Ian Johnson. Uh, Ian, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Uh, right, lovely to speak to you. Lovely to see you yesterday, accidentally, as you were about to sit on stage and talk about sustainable financing. Funnily enough, talk to me about this decision from the DFSA to waive fees on ESG listings for that stock exchange for the NASDAQ Dubai. What does it cover? Well, to maybe set the context a bit, Brandy, um, the UAE is, you know, is heavily committed to um, uh, transitioning from a, a higher carbon economy to a lower carbon economy. Uh, and has pledged to be net zero by 2050. Um, so the UAE as a whole has a lot of initiatives underway and we're falling into line with, um, with the, the country strategy. So that, that transition from um, being a high carbon place to a lower carbon place can only happen if it's funded. The transition has to be funded somehow. Governments all around the world are struggling with this issue. Um, governments are not going to be able to have enough money to fund the transition. Uh, and therefore, capital markets have a significant role to play. Within the DIFC, um, we have NASDAQ Dubai, which um, has a significant listings 
of um, ESG, so that's environmentally, social and governance related bonds, debt issues listed on NASDAQ Dubai. We are the regulator, as you know, for the DIFC and of NASDAQ Dubai. Um, and as those listings come to market, we've decided that from now until the end of 2024, we'll waive our regulatory fees in respect of issues coming to market that are new, but also renewals of issues that are already there. So it's the regulatory fees that, that we charge that we will waive, um, and that will just further encourage the development of the ESG bond market in the DIFC. What kind of money are we talking here? I mean, what are the fees? What are companies going to be saving? Oh, look, it's not a significant amount of money. Um, our fees are, are around about $10,000 US per listing. It can be more than that because it depends on the size of the listing. So it's not a huge amount of money per issue, but all of the things, accommodations that various people are making will add up. And it's just part of making the market more attractive for listers. Who is going to qualify for that, or rather, how do they qualify for it? Who signs off on what counts as properly ESG? Well, that, that's up to the issuer. So if a company is um, issuing a bond, so a debt raising to, to fund something, they can label it um, as an ESG bond. That might be a, a green bond. They might label it an environmental bond, a climate bond. It depends what the money will be used for. Um, but we rely on them in respect of selecting that. We do, though, say that, of course, as a regulator, we would require that they go through a proper process in being able to label something environmental or green. Um, they should be transparent about that process and explain it in the prospectus for their investors. Uh, and then we would expect it to be true to label, whereby if they say that it's being used for a particular purpose, might be in investing in renewables, might be investing in a company that does wind farms. It could be anything like that. It could, could even be the development of social housing if it was a social bond. We would expect her to be true to label. Um, and uh, as the regulator, of course, we'd be interested and would take action if it wasn't true to label. Now, I was going to say, I mean, who does the buck actually stop with on that? We've heard a lot about greenwashing at COP. Is it your job or someone else's job to make sure that the mangroves actually get planted? Well, it's, it's their job to make sure that they do what they say they were going to do. So the responsibility, of course, lies with the company that's making the issue. Um, we, though, uh, as a regulator, if we were receiving information or complaints that that money wasn't being used properly, or if we saw in the accounting or the disclosures um, from the issuer, um, that there was something that was wrong, then we, we would take action in respect of that. Green, greenwashing is a, is a new concept when people talk about it, but actually it's an old principle. If you think about what greenwashing is, it's people who are misrepresenting um, the, the greenness, the environmental compatibility of what they're doing. They're misrepresenting that. That's greenwashing. Um, that's, that basically comes down to misleading the market. Uh, as a regulator, we're used to dealing with issues of market integrity. We're used to dealing with issues of investor protection. We're used to dealing with issues of um, misleading and deceptive conduct. And so if we see that happening in respect of environmental matters, that would be greenwashing, then we've got the usual tools um, that, that regulators have always had to be able to, uh, to act in respect of that. The, the other thing I would say, though, and I, and I said this on one of the panels um, yesterday, shortly after I bumped into you, um, People are worried about greenwashing, but I, I wouldn't let the fear of greenwashing stop people from investing. Uh, whenever you see significant growth in markets, and we are seeing significant growth in these markets, whenever you see that, yes, you will see some increase or some opportunity for misconduct. 
but but I wouldn't let that people stop people from investing um, uh, unless they see that something actually has happened in respect of a specific issue. But we would then take action in respect of that. Uh, Thirty seconds, Ian. Is the focus increasingly on on ESG for listed companies and the rest changing your job as a regulator? Certainly is. Look, the DIFC in Nasdaq Dubai has about sixty percent of global listings for ESG Sukuk, Islamic bonds, 60% of the global market. Um, and they're, they're increasing year by year. It reinforces the position of the DIFC as the leading financial center in the region. And more and more of our time is being taken up with these issues. Ian Johnson is the chief executive of the Dubai Financial Services Authority. It's the regulatory body for the DIFC. Thank you so much for your time. And what I know is a very busy week for you. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Adrian putting it very, very succinctly at the moment. A cool amounts being talked about. We only need... Uh, $4 trillion, and believe it uh, or not, we can do this as well. Uh, Bold leadership is what Adrian is saying at the moment. Keep them coming, 4001. We're talking all things COP28. We continue our climate conversations now, talking to some of the the key delegates who are contributing and taking part at this year's event here in the UAE. None other than the Senior Vice President and Chief Energy Strategist at S&P Global, a man who's responsible for integrating content analysis and insights across the energy value chain for C-suite engagements. Uh, He's dragged himself away from his engagements to have a chat with us this morning. Uh, Please welcome Atal Aya to the stage, or rather to our broadcast position here. Atal, great to see you. Thanks for being with us. Good morning. Great to be here. So I suppose the best place to start is what? On the, uh, on the, on the, the early stages of day five, I mean, one of the big headlines that we're reporting today are the major announcements, the big numbers, the accomplishments. Is that the way that you're reading it in the early part of COP28? I would agree, Tom. I think we've had quite a few accomplishments. You know, we've had early, even before the COP started, we had the loss and damage fund established, which was a big uh, big issue, and it was successfully addressed. And since then, we have uh, had announcements on methane emissions, the oil and gas industry coming on, on the table. And yesterday, of course, we had a flurry of announcements on on money, which you cover. So uh, lots of money coming in and a lot more money is needed. So I think that's all very good news so far. Lots of good talk, lots of great initiatives, and yet CO2 emissions still a concern. Why are we still not seeing emissions go down? Yeah, you know, it's like it's a wicked problem, as I say, uh, back home, because CO2 emissions, uh, first of all, once CO2 goes into the atmosphere, it stays there for a long time. Think about a bathtub where even if you close the tap, you know, unless you plug, uh, remove the plug, it's not going to drain. So that's what CO2 is simply about. Oil, gas, and coal consumption this year in 2023 will be at record levels. You may remember after COVID, we saw a decline in those. So emissions are continuing to go up as long as oil, gas, and coal continue to be consumed. And the challenge is even if the emissions come down in OECD, in the developing world, the the emissions going up in non-OECD in in the developing world are much more than what's coming down. And so the math doesn't work. Mm -hmm. You mentioned fossil fuels there and obviously a large discussion of recent COPs, none more so than this, is the discussion about the phasing down or potential phasing out of our reliance on fossil fuels. Where do you stand on that argument at the moment? I think, in my view, 
Tom, it's the wrong question to ask. Mm. Look, we're going to need some level of fossil fuel consumption, even in 2050, probably in 2070. So it's not the question of, you know, phasing down, but it's a question of how do we deal with those emissions which those fossil fuels are generating. And that's where we need to focus on. You know, there are lots of people in the world who, when they move from, from wood to LPG, liquid petroleum gas, some people may say, well, it's still fossil fuel, right? Mm. But that's energy transition for them. So we need to be thinking in a different way. Clearly, we need to address coal emissions. That's a really big issue. But beyond that, oil and gas consumptions are going to come down as technologies to replace oil and gas, particularly, for example, renewables for power generation coming on, EVs coming up, and that is going to change the demand for oil and gas, but not kind of immediately. And don't think that we'll wake up tomorrow morning and we'll all be saying, well, that is the end of fossil fuel age. It doesn't happen that way. First COP uh, here in the UAE, second in the sort of Arab world as a whole as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I suppose that's a nice point to talk because we're talking different geographies and therefore different interpretations when it comes to discussion about fossil fuels and energy here uh, as, as opposed to other parts of the world. I mean, you've written in the past, Path Net Zero must uh, travel via the global south as well. Is there a is there a north-south divide here in the conversation? There has been, I would say, north-south divide. You know, there has been the concern from the global south that the north is telling the south southern countries what to do, yeah. being, you know, t- preaching to them. And, and I think this COP, actually, the COP has done a great job, Dr. Sultan, as the, ch- as the chairman, has done a great job, president of COP, to really bring the south into the conversation. I think if you have to get to the net zero, which we all want to get to, It has to go via south because you have countries like India and China. They're very large contributors to CO2 emissions. And unless you get them down, nothing is going to happen. And we can't declare victory until, uh, until the south is part of the solution. Part of that solution, as you see it, is what you call a multidimensional energy transition. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so, you know, the history of energy transition is quite interesting because no fuel no, has ever been completely phased out. And by multidimensional, what I mean is that it's not going to be a linear path from A to B, like a straight line. You know, each country has a different starting point, so we're going to see different approaches. We're going to see multi-fuel. We're going to see, as we just talked, oil, gas, and coal to continue. We'll see a lot more renewables, but it doesn't mean oil, gas, and coal will disappear. And we will also see multi-technology. We'll see multi-speed. So this is not going to be a straight line. It's going to be a complex transition, and we should all be prepared for that. Do some of those technologies look more promising to you than others? Well, I mean, there is, you know, one thing which hasn't been talked about as much here so far, Tom, is energy efficiency, which is a technology, not really a technology, but a suite of technologies. And, and the goal now is to double energy efficiency by 2030. That's good for all seasons. We should do that. Renewables, we should be deploying them as quickly as possible, as much as possible. And beyond that, um, today is the energy day, so we're going to be talking a lot about hydrogen and carbon capture. And those are the technologies we really need to scale. And the last one I'll mention is storage, because we, if we can crack long-duration storage, not for you know our cars, but for long-duration, several days, then you see the renewables then become much more you know, b- easily integrated into the, our energy system. Let's stick with renewables just quickly, if we can, because... Target's been talked about at the moment for the tripling of renewables yeah. and renewable capacity, as you mentioned there, with storage, etc., by 2030. I mean, is, is that feasible? Well, yeah, so the tripling, the number is 11,000 gigawatts. And just to give you the scale required, it's going to be the, as much power generation through renewables as we have in the world today, between now and 2030. I think one of, I, I worry about one big thing, which is supply chains. In order to 
deploy that level of renewables, we need robust supply chains. And the other thing which worries me is, you know, this talk about uh, French shoring and all of that to create barriers for trade. I think the world of energy has always had free trade. We need to continue to have free trade. We need to solve challenges which exist, say, for example, between the OECD and China and see how we can bring the world together because ultimately we all have to, you know, we are all solving one for one problem, which is to reduce emissions. I've got 30 seconds remaining with you, just enough time for some closing comments. I mean, if there's one takeaway from the first five days or one bit of advice moving forward to the remainder of COP, what is it? I would say there's great sense of optimism, so that's what I take away from the first five days. Uh, I won't give advice to Dr. Sultan or any <laughs> of those people, but I would only say, only say that stay with the plan, stay yeah. with the plan. We all need to be part of the solution, and those who are sitting out and throwing, uh, throwing stones, be part of the solution. Wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much indeed for, Thank you for having taking me. time to speak to us here on Dubai Eye. Senior Vice President and Chief Energy Strategist at S&P Global is Atal Arya joining us live here on Dubai Eye 103.8. More to come. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Yeah, or if you've been roaming down here, you will know that there is um, an extensive optionality. Um, when it comes to F and B, Georgia um, did an excellent interview a couple of weeks ago um, with a youth activism group called Youngo. They were campaigning for sustainable, nutritious, affordable uh, plant-based food at COP. We wanted to know, what do you actually feed a COP goer? Is it all seaton and tofu? In the studio, who is a man who expects to serve quarter of a million meals this COP. Uh, Name Madad is CEO and founder of Gates Hospitality. Name, good morning. Good morning. So tell us, you have opened a number of restaurants at COP. What have you got here? None to be specific. So we start with the classics of, of Dubai, Bistro Desart, Reform Social and Grill. We have a couple of local heroes um, Sarah Akel and Faisal Nasser, who are local talent that we've decided to uh, put them on a platform and bring them across here doing some local flavors. We also have a brand out of the UK, Hideaway, uh, which is doing phenomenally well, as well as Ultra Brasserie, uh, which is one of our staples in the local market. So what was your brief in terms of copifying what you were offering? The brief was actually very precise and very much to the point of the offering, down to the offering. As a, as a matter of fact, we had clear guidelines on the amount of vegan, the amount of vegetarian meals that we had to provide, uh, peak hours and, and, and so forth. What we have done in-house is, is really we've taken all of this very seriously and we said let's find, identify local sources, local suppliers, um, as well as farmers and, and work with these individuals to make sure that what we're providing is very much controlled from travel time, freshness and value and variety. Okay, so let's break that down, starting with the plant-based food, the meat-free food. What kind of percentage were you told you would have to offer? We were told that basically vegan vegetarian, as a summary, up to 60% that needs to be made available to our diners. And that's, that's actually very, very good because it works in our favor in making sure that across all of the brands we have a lot of uh, offering that is very, very much unique to what we do and making sure the freshness stays on top of everything we talk about. So how have you tweaked the menu of somewhere like Bistro Du Arts to do that? Again, I think you'd be surprised that in today's most of our restaurants, uh, vegan and vegetarian uh, offering is not actually one or two dishes. It's 
up to 40% of our offering. Over the last five years, we've seen a major shift uh, based on demographics, based on people's preferences and so forth, that people are asking for healthy food. So yes, there are dishes, bistro dessert, heavy on butter, heavy on meat. However, 40% of the menu today is all about healthy eating and uh, lots, of, lots of greens. So what about the, the local sourcing? What have you been able to find and what was tricky? Look, for this time of the year, we're very fortunate. Again, uh, when I say local, there's a lot of it here within the UAE. There's a lot from the Levant as well. So again, road travel rather than airlift. So that's reducing our footprint as, as much as possible. Um, so it's a good time of the year. There, there isn't really much that's not available in this. We're blessed with the supply. We're blessed with the sourcing. Uh, as, a, as a matter of fact, I'll challenge anyone that says things aren't available. I think what's not available is... Uh, equally as available, I should say, actually, is the packaging component, which is a topic that I'd like to talk about. And please do, because that is on my list as well, because it's not just the food itself, isn't it? It's how you deliver it, particularly to people who might be taking and, and, and walking as well. Absolutely. So, again, you have people carrying food you have people sitting on high benches and, and so forth so we have to keep all of that in mind when we're actually designing the menus curating our offering and so forth so going out to the market today sourcing this packaging has been proven to be difficult for the fact that you don't really have a lot of variety and because you don't have variety price is actually impacting a lot of the decisions you're making which is kind of a catch uh, for, for the supply chain Moving forward, we need to be having a look. We need to make sure that there is ample offering on the marketplace so people have options, have choices and a lot of variety to choose from. Uh, and that's proven difficult for us this time around. So how have you fixed that problem for what you are providing here? Look, fortunately, we have the volume. So we were actually fortunate enough to be early involved in, in the decision-making process. So we've worked with a couple of suppliers who have brought things in for us, especially uh, bamboo packaging and, and so forth. Um, nonetheless, we had to take the lead on that. It wasn't readily available. And that's exactly my point, that it should be readily available if we are all serious about sustainability and moving in that direction. What were you asked to do? What directives were you given when it came to pricing affordability? Again, pricing, the, the elasticity was given there fairly broad, but we, we understand what people do when they're buying a, a lunch, when they're buying, we, we understand patterns of, of commercial towers behavior, we call it. People come down for lunch, come down for a coffee. We understand that price point. It has to be fast, it has to be efficient, it has to be value for money. And again, you need to make sure when you're leaving, you say, this is value for money, whatever I paid. Uh, you talk about people coming down and, and grabbing. I mean, I was here at COP yesterday. Um, if you to get into the sessions you you know you need to be there early people are doing stuff on the move it's very very busy what are your aims in terms of speed of service again believe me we spend hours on this because typically our restaurants are all about experiences and making sure that we give you a journey rather than over-the-counter service so we had to go through a lot of training with our team members making sure that um, it's it's about selecting paying and handing over a very little engagement with uh, preparation of the food or, or, or so forth. Basically, people get, get to see what's on offer, they choose, they do the transaction, and they move on. And that's how they queues. You have to keep moving the queues because, again, everyone's on the same coffee breaks, everyone's at the same lunchtime, uh, and everyone's heading to the same meeting rooms. COP's only two weeks long, but I understand you're going to be here beyond that. 
Yes, out of the nine venues, we are keeping five until the end of March for the festive seasons um, to cover the activities that will be taking place in Expo City until the end of Ramadan. And we're very much looking forward. And the brands that we are keeping are more about the dining experiences. Again, there'll be lots of families coming to see Expo site, engaging in the winter festivities and the festive festivities. And we'll be here until the end of March, keeping um, Safar, keeping um, Reform, keeping Bistro Desart, keeping um, Toasty, Faisal. So we're quite excited about that. And again, very proud to be doing the first um, cheese, toasty and soup food truck in Dubai. Simple stuff, but good, honest food. What kind of footfall are you expecting to see here over the winter months? What are you projecting? Okay, again, if, if it's anything like last year, we, we'll see a, a, a very healthy footfall, particularly on the weekends and over the uh, holidays. Um, so we, we are gearing up. There will be a lot of concerts. There's lots of events. There's lots of family activations and uh, events. So we're looking forward to making sure that we are there to service our repeat clientele and beyond. Name Dan, thanks for joining us this morning. Nine restaurants here at Copperman who expects to serve a quarter of a million meals during this climate summit. We appreciate you coming and finding us in our studio this morning. Thank you. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.